Hello, and welcome to Happy Hour with Stretch and Stir Fry, a new podcast hosted by yachtsandyachting.com and sailworld.com, the global sailing network. My pal Stir Fry and I thought that amidst the doom and gloom, we should take the time to drink some rum and chat to you about the sport that we love. Each week, we'll welcome a world-class sailor to give us their views and tell us a few yarns, giving you a light-hearted insight to their world and lives, whilst getting their more serious thoughts on the latest gossip and also the big issues in sailing. And to lead you to the start line, you'll have to put up with me, Stretch, an overly tall sailor who's managed to be the handbrake on some of the world's loveliest racing yachts. But this lack of skill will hopefully be rescued by my multi-talented co-host, Stir Fry. For those of you who don't know Stir Fry's sailing background, he's a true sailing all-rounder with 15 world championships to his name. He's won in the Etchells, J24, Melger's 24 and TP52, as well as more recently back-to-back Dragon World titles. He's raced for the Louis Vuitton Series at the America's Cup and finished runner-up in the 92 Olympic Trials. He's that old. He's not just an inshore softie, though, as he's also managed to be a fastnet, middle sea, Giralia and Tour de France Alavoile winner. But perhaps most importantly, certainly to me, he's a fabulous person to sail with. He makes sailing fun. Cheers, Stretch. I reckon this is going to be a lot of fun. Rarely I say this, but with your skill set in this arena, I feel I'm in safe hands. The guest list that we have lined up It reads like a who's who of sailing from around the world. You must be very, very persuasive. We will cover the America's Cup, the Olympics, youth sailing, offshore and inshore racing, foiling, and where applicable, bar story legends. In the words of legendary Kiwi sailing broadcaster Pete Montgomery, it's going to be a slingshot stat. Stir fries and my happy hour guest this week is Ian Walker, MBE, current OA Director of Racing. He really has done it all, winning two Olympic silver medals in both the 470 and the Star. More recently, he won the Volvo Ocean Race with Abu Dhabi Ocean Racing. Whilst off the water, he's an ardent trustee of the John Merrick's Trust, and the poor bloke is a West Ham fan. I hope that you enjoy listening to Ian. His insight and passion for sailing is absolutely fascinating. Ian, welcome. How are you? I'm bearing up stretch. Uh, two weeks into lockdown, I guess uh, we're all getting a bit sick of DIY and gardening. How, how's Mrs. Walker in that case? Obviously, it's a nightmare for her because she has me at home all day long. It's, yeah, it's kind of kind of weird, isn't it? Just in the family unit, and um, yeah, kind of miss miss seeing other people and miss being on the water. Well, this is your lucky moment because um, we've got stir fry on the other line here. Um, who's taking a large glug of a very expensive glass of red wine at the moment. Now, you and Stir Fry have known each other for a very long time. Ian, when did you first cross tax with Stir Fry? I, oh, think... I, I reckon he might give a different answer to me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go for... And I didn't really know him then. I'm going to go for the J24 Nationals in Brighton when he and Dave Bedford and the rest of their crew were clearly overweight <laughs> and had to had to leave the championship before they could get weighed in on the last day of the event. And I was I was at university, and I think I just came down and put my name on the blackboard to crew for someone. I think I sailed a boat called Parsnet, and um, I'm guessing that would have been about, I don't know, 91? What do you 80, reckon, uh, Stir Fry? 89. 89, all right, it was my first year of university. 89, Brighton. Yeah, we were not overweight. We weighed in okay, and then... Someone felt that we might have put on a little more weight in the regatta than we should have done, and we're looking for us after the last or last race. And might might have put on a little bit of weight <laughs> since the weigh-in. And so, uh, so who won I mean, that regatta? I think the weight limit was four hundred, 
with the J24, we were probably sailing at about 460. 460. No, yeah, I reckon we were 25 to 30 over. So. Anyway, I was I was young, I was naive, I was very impressionable, I was very impressed by these guys who had won, and I remember they couldn't turn up for the prize giving because they'd all had to leave when the rumour was going to be a weigh-in, and then when the weigh-in was cancelled, they suddenly reappeared. <laughs> I, I, I have to correct you on one point. Most of your story is absolutely correct, but it was actually, Southie won the event, we were second. So uh, well, I have to say, if I'd been director of racing at the RIA then, I'd have clamped, clamped down hard on you, sir, Frank. Really? What would you have done? I'd made you stand outside my office for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You did give the same answer, Stretch. And I'd just like to say that I slept in the boat that week at the J24 Nationals, and it was blown old boots and wet all week. I basically slept in a, in a wet spinnaker all week, but... Um, well, that's, that's something, Stretch, I think that you need to uh, embrace and through this podcast over the coming weeks really push is that um, the youngsters, you know, they have to do the apprenticeship before they can uh, fully step into the world of pro yachting, all right? I want yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's very important. <laughs> hang, hang on a minute, hang on. What exactly do, do you define as the apprenticeship, Sir Fry? You've got me worried. Well, the apprenticeship, and I think you will agree in, you are a nipper, a nipper, a nipper, and then suddenly there is no transition that you know about, but you've made it. And you go from being the nipper to being one of the people who are able to command respect, dish out jobs. You go from being the brush to the hose holder, and you have no idea why. Is this a bit like Stretcher's school? Oh, God, no, we don't want to go there. Where did you go to school? Let's, let's, let's leave my schooling out of this, shall we? In fact, let's, um, let's focus on a few other things for now. <laughs> Guys, um, I'd love to know a little bit more about that regatta, but actually I'd like to focus on a few other things. I mean, um, obviously Corona is uh, top of the list of everyone's chat, mainly our wives, because they're so bored of hanging out with us now. Um, stir fry in particular you, um, but it's tough times for the sailing world, isn't it? Uh, well, I think it's tough times for everyone. I mean, even the people who've been furloughed or who are having uh, a great amount of... Oh, sorry, my phone's going... A great amount of government support. Um, might be a job offer, Steph, right? I should take it. Stretch, going back to your previous question, with yeah. the um, J24 National, it appears like it was 1990... 1989. 1989. And I think the first time we really spent a lot of time saying together would have been the Admiral's Cup in 1997. And, and I guess that's something which... Which I guess you grew up, you know seeing and we all grew up with seeing and it's something I think we really sorely miss and uh, turning up at Cowles as an impressionable teenager seeing all the keelboats seeing the scoreboard up in the in the yacht haven there and uh, seeing all, all the professional sailors carrying the sails down to the boat it pressured me and that, that first campaign with Jonathan Fairfry and with the likes of Glenn and uh, everybody else in the team it was uh, it was it was pretty heady days. I, I so agree with you I think the, the Admiral's Cup for me was absolutely what got me excited about big boat sailing rather like you walking down the dock in cows and seeing all these incredible teams lined up but I, and i remember being in the sail at my dinghy and seeing um panda i think blasting downwind you know past hurst and just thinking wow it's a real shame though that we've lost the admiral's cup is that ever going to come back i don't think it'll come back in the same shape or form but hopefully hopefully we'll have a have another event of some description similar but um yeah i think uh the 97 Admiral's Cup, we were doing the, um, we, we were given the opportunity to sell the Mum 36 uh, through Peter Morton. And, um, and it was, it was a bit of a Tim Barrett, what a man. 
Tim Murray. He was the boat. He was the owner. Uh, boat was called Bradamante, and um, we'd never been offshore before. I remember we used to do offshore practice. I'm not sure how much uh, people do that anymore. We used to go go out overnight practicing, and we started off Johnny and I with torches taped to the guardrails so we could see the telltales because we didn't know how you'd be able to sail without being able to see the telltales because we were dinghy sailors. Uh, eventually, uh, Stirfry and that switched the torches off and made us sail to the instruments and. We used to practice our sail changes in the dark at night, and the lightest people used to have to get on the bow for the sail change because it was best for the weight configuration. I think I was the second lightest, so I even had to get on the bow once in a while. And um, when I look back on that, it's pretty good memories. And, and the Admiral's Cup itself, one of my abiding memories was uh, we got really lucky on the first night of the fast net race by getting stuck in shore, really through ignorance rather than skill, and uh, ended up with a huge lead. And then I remember uh, clear as day running across the Irish Sea. We decided to rest everybody because it was going to be on the wind on the way back. And so uh, Stirfry and I basically sailed the boat between the two of us with everybody else asleep so that when we turned the corner, everybody else was fresh. So there we were on a 36-footer in the Admiral's Cup, leading by about five or six miles with me steering and Stirfry playing the sheet and guy and everybody else getting some, some rest, shirts off, sun's out. It's uh, not very often you get to do that in the first night across the Irish Sea. I, I think you do yourself a disservice, though, here on the we were caught inshore. Uh, I, I think between you, Sid, and Johnny, there was a play to go inshore, and you backed yourself on your strategy, and the other thing we were good at was kedging. Like, we kedged, we <laughs> held immediately, and... I mean, I know we were a little nervous at daybreak and the skeds then weren't quite the same as they are now, but um, when the skeds came in and we thought, yeah, we're in this, and then down to Land's End and we were off across the Irish Sea, that was champagne sailing. Absolutely fantastic. How did you guys end up in that one? We won IMS, didn't we? We won overall IMS. We won IMS overall for the fast net and we were top mum 36 for the Admiral's Cup, which is, you know, for, for Ian and Johnny in their first foray into offshore racing was quite something and uh, I mean we must give due deference there to, to Sid Sid came on board and he was pain in the ass, but he was very very good at reinforcing the basics whenever they needed reinforcing I remember one of the basics we learned was don't hide Red Bull in the toilet <laughs> I remember because we, we never used the toilet we used to go off the back Please. we hid about 20 cans of Red Bull in the toilet and take the lid down so that we could push through the last 24 hours and I remember we, we, we smashed all the Red Bull in about six hours from the finish and did about 150 jibes, if I remember rightly. <laughs> well, I think Johnny was roll jiving across Plymouth Sound just to, you know, to gain an extra vote. I mean, it's, it's interesting what you said, though, um, thanks to Peter Morton. And, and do you think one of the problems with the Admiral's Cup now is it's really hard to find the owners who've got the time and potentially even the cash now, thanks to coronavirus, to actually finance what are pretty expensive campaigns now? I think the sport has changed immeasurably. So the Admiral's Cup will have to be reborn in a different format. When the Admiral's Cup was in its peak, it was probably the most important regatta of the year. And people geared their whole IOR, IMS season around coming to Cows to try and compete in the Admiral's Cup. But the world of yachting, because of the ease of travel, is so much different now than it was, that I would say the competition would have to travel around the globe to be successful. The boats at each each of individual event might have to change. I mean, it, it just needs a radical rethink. But I, I still think out there is a, a real clamour and a, uh, an enthusiasm for a team event, mm. for sure. Talking of the pro sailing world and rethinks and everything, um, probably this is more for you, Steph, for nowadays, but I mean, 
What do you think the effect of coronavirus is going to have on everyone at the moment? Well, firstly, the effect that it has will be the effect, and we shouldn't feel hard done by whatever happens because we've had a very privileged life up till now. My worry is that there will be a lot of people who want to go yachting, be it at the end of the year or the beginning of next year, whenever it is, and the sport will be guilty of trying to cram too much in to too small a time frame. You know, I think there will be an element of it needs baby steps for the sport to recover, be it, you know, uh, football, rugby, baseball, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think there will have to be some baby steps where people need to re-understand what we're trying to achieve. Um, I think if people think it's going to go back to being exactly the same as it was, personally, I think they're dreaming. Which kind of also brings us on to the Olympics now. And obviously, Ian, this has been a massive part of your life from sailing in the Olympics to coaching in the Olympics and now obviously being the director of racing at RYA. Olympics postponement, I mean, how does this, this affect your guys? Are you going to be doing any other qualifiers? I mean, what's what's the story for the next year now? Well, we, we've at least we know the Olympics is going to be uh, same dates next year, so we can start planning around that. I guess the immediate um, the immediate priority was was to sort of look after the welfare of the of the sailors and the coaching team and these sailors put their whole lives into trying to go to the games. I mean, if you take as an example, John Gimson, he spent 16 years trying to go to the Olympics. Yeah. But the mental anguish of then not knowing whether the Olympics was going to happen, whether it was going to get cancelled, whether it was going to be postponed, um, whether the British Olympic Association would seek a, a retrial of all their team members. Because, of course, remember, it's the BOA, uh, the BOA's team. It's not an RWA team that does the Olympics. We nominate the sailors. But fundamentally, it's Team GB. So yeah, just making sure that we've 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 checked in with all of them. We keep them up to date with the information, and and then I guess the next priority for us is to uh, try and uh, work out what the finances look like. Like like every other business, mm. right now they're desperate, you know, desperately trying to work out what the future holds and rework their budgets both for this year and the following year. And of course, we run on a four-year cycle, which finishes in March 2021, which isn't ideal if the Olympics are four months later in, in Tokyo. So uh, even if we look at this financial year coming, normally we would have a huge amount of activity leading up to the Games, spend the majority of our money um, up to the Games and then have a period of relative inactivity over the winter whilst the Olympic sailors have time off, the coaches spend time with their families before we kind of regroup in the spring of the following year. Well, this year is going to be turned on its head. We've got this enforced break now, mm. and we need to make sure we can finance the Olympic team, you know, for a much longer duration preparation leading in to the Games in July next year. So, so all all of that, we're trying to, you know, that, that's been our priorities, trying to look at uh, trying to look at those things and trying to replan. But I mean, there's lots of really big really big issues and uh, but you know fundamentally this is a sport you know there's people out there fighting for their lives there's people fighting for their jobs there's people who can't pay the mortgage so we have to we have to keep this in perspective um but uh, you know if i was looking at it looking at you know similar to all stir fry's comments the calendar is going to become really challenging and you know it, it, are all the classes and clubs going to try and put on events towards the tail end of this year and how would that work and and actually, to be brutally honest, will will they be able to afford to run events? Events are really expensive to host. Might not be the um, the willingness to host these major events. Um, and then looking to next year, you've potentially got you've potentially got two sets of Olympic events because of the change in Olympic classes. You know, you're simultaneously, presumably, going to be trying to run 
events for the new Olympic classes like kiteboarding and offshore, whilst also um, focusing in on the Games uh, classes for 2021. And for some, that's a real challenge. RSX is a real challenge because um, I'm not even sure they're manufacturing equipment for RSX anymore. Uh, they were just kind of hanging on for the Games this year. Well, now we've got a 12-month extension. So lots and lots of questions. Real, real challenging time for world sailing, not just for their own organization but um for the calendar and uh, and for all the member national authorities that you know there'll be a lot of governing bodies that are in a worse place than us in terms of their finance over the four-year period and effectively having to run two olympics in the next in the next quad does that mean Ian, that a developed nation stroke better funded nations will be better equipped to, to take more medals in Tokyo? I don't know. I guess it depends how much spend people had already committed for this year, what they can claw back and then just refocus on the following year. I mean, we ourselves don't have any guaranteed funding between March 2020 or beyond March 2021. So UK Sport, who are our main funding partner, have been hugely supportive of both the athletes and the governing body, but they themselves don't know what funding they've got from government until until autumn this year. So there's just lots and lots of question marks, a bit of a, a you know a moving target. But you know fundamentally, the task remains the same, which is to prepare the sailors as best we can to perform. It's just going to be a year later. We've always believed in early selection. We didn't think it would be this early. You think there are a couple of dark horses in our team that will benefit from the, the year of extra preparation or will mature or... It, it, are the metal hopes exactly the same in a year's time as they are now? Well, you know, I have to be slightly careful with what, what I what I do or don't say, but obviously the first thing is Olympic selection. So we need confirmation from the British Olympic Association whether whether we retain the same sailors. So we hope to get that within the next week or two, and then hopefully that will put the minds of the sailors at rest. You know, there's a fork in the road there, but if you if you assume the team stays the same and you look at the team, then you know, they're all have their own individual. Um, strengths and weaknesses. So, as an example, Giles Scott, he's doing the America's Cup. The America's Cup, assuming that still goes ahead and finishes in March, you know, what impact will that have on his training, as an example? We've got a really young sailor in Emma, Emma Wilson, who's, you know, on a really steep learning curve. One would think another year would really benefit uh, her mm-hmm. relative to her competition. Uh, and I'm sure there's some examples of sailors who it might not suit quite so much. And our job is to try and make sure that we mitigate against that and support them all as best we can. Listening to you, it's it's, it's really interesting to see quite ha- um, the incredible support now that our, our top sailors get from the RWA. I mean, it's something that at, at any age people should should be very appreciative of, I think, in our country. But um, going back to your own Olympic experiences, um, but uh, Ian, I mean, when you and Johnny initially were sailing together, I mean, um, how much support was, was there back in those days or were you just hopping in a boat and going for it kind of thing? We, we transitioned the, I guess I transitioned the advent of national lottery funding in the UK sport. So that came in in 97. So I sailed the games in 96 and 2000. So in 96, you know, there really wasn't much sport, uh, support. There was a little bit of sport council support. Most of the funding we had was raised privately through the sale for golf ball. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, we were very fortunate then to have commercial support through Mars back in those days. But, I mean, I, I clearly remember the first meeting we had. Uh, this is Johnny and I with Rod Carr and we... We went through all our goals and our strengths and weaknesses and all the things we need to work on and 
you know, one minute we're talking about roll tacking or heavy weather driving and, and, and the next minute we sort of all looked at each other and we said, well, unless we raise some money, the rest of it's irrelevant because we didn't have a beam. And, um, and that's when we put all our efforts over that winter into, into fundraising. And, uh, and fortunately, because there's a lot of luck involved, fortunately, we managed to secure the sponsorship of Mars. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to do. I and mean, I remember our budget, and we had a lot of support actually from North Sales. Johnny was a sail maker, became a salesman for North Sales. So, you know, we could lose some petrol and we didn't pay for sales and borrow the North Sales van. So we had a lot of advantages, but I remember our budget for our first year was £12,000. And then, you know, four years later, when I did the games with Mark Cavell and the Star, albeit the Star's a more expensive boat, but I remember our budget was £120,000. But, you know, in those days, you were sleeping in the car, you were camping, you were making your own sales, you were, um, you know, you were sort of making up as you go along, really. And now it's way more professional, the stand much higher, huge levels of sports science support and coaching. Uh, and they're, you know, incredible athletes at the top of their game, and and it and that's expensive to run. So, Stir Fry '92. I mean, were you guys just left to your own devices then, and just get together and go sailing as much as you could? Uh, well, we were very lucky. We were we were part of the Richard Ellis Elite Squad, so we had the best level of funding from the RYA. We all ran up, you know, myself, Glenn, and Chris Gowers. We all ran up massive overdrafts to try and get to the games. Uh, we weren't successful. Would I change anything? No. I mean, I think if you if you look back, sport has changed immeasurably. I mean, Ian would bear this out, but even the the guy who, who now goes down to his little club, sails his boat and wants to go to the Olympics, his pathway is as precarious as ours was. Yeah, I, I, I don't... I, I think to look back and say, were we supported? Yes, we were, but it was very, very different. You can't underestimate the impact that a few private individuals made. Uh, you know, for instance, Graham Walker in his support of, of Glenn and Peter Morton. He's given a variety of people, not, not always money, by the way, sometimes contact, sometimes advice, sometimes, sometimes equipment or logistics. But, you know, there's some hugely influential people who, who privately have, have got behind Olympic sailors in times gone by. And I think you know, that, that quite rightly has, has reduced uh, as, as lottery funding has, has been able to take up the mantle. Stirfer and I were chatting yesterday about the top sailors, the top young dinghy sailors of, of the now, I suppose, and, and looking at the very different ways that they've now come coming through the systems. The RYA itself, whenever I hear you talking in about RYA youth racing, you're always talking about the fight to retain young sailors, I think. There's a lot of, a lot of this kind of thing about let's not lose all these young sailors. So well, how are you guys going about just trying to, trying to make sure we don't lose the nippers, as Stairfrow would call them, so that they can come through and hopefully end up sailing in all the big you know, regattas of the world down the line? One day with you, Stretch, is that what you mean? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd give them a good time, but they'd come last. <laughs> you can't start on the radio. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, our goal at youth level is to develop and retain young sailors. And you know, there's no point in developing a load of talent if they all give up. That's kind of pointless. So you have to, you have to include retention in any plan that you're doing. And it's, you know, it's really difficult because fundamentally we're running a talent pathway. We're, we're using sporting and in UK sport money largely to do that. And, and a talent pathway, unfortunately, 
is what it sounds like. It, you know, it is the survival of the fittest and the best. Mm. And unfortunately, in any pathway, in any sport, there's a small number that make it and a huge number who drop out. Now, that doesn't sit particularly well with me and with the wider sport because we need people to stay in the sport and we need them to not just develop their talent and skills, but we need to develop their love of the sport. And I think the danger of having too much of the pathway, in inverted commas, and not enough of the sort of club and the community and the social mm. side is that it's all based around performance. And at some time, your performance won't match up to your own expectations um, or you stop enjoying it or you outgrow your boat or or some other reason happens and then you, you can leave the sport. Whereas I think if you've grown up with a gang of people at your club and you've got a strong strong community and you sell a bunch of different boats, then even if you stop for a while, the chances are you'll probably, you know, when, when things have changed, you'll have such fond memories of the sport that you'll come back to it when you've got more time or more money or you live by the sea or by a lake or whatever. So so I think I think trying to balance those two things is really, really difficult. And ultimately the the money that the OAA um, effectively, you know, spends trying to develop talent and win medals. It's that's what it's there for. Uh, we need to have more than half an eye on the general health of the sport, and so that's why we've made changes at junior level. We've, we've actually, as of this autumn, we will no longer have national junior squads. We're trying to encourage kids to do more of their learning in their clubs, or if not even in their own club, at least a club much more local to them. The training the OA delivers will be delivered regionally and not nationally. So, you know, some of the kids nationally in their junior squads at the moment spend more time in the car driving to the training weekends than they do on the water actually at the training weekends. Just trying to reset the balance something. And the coaching we offer is is great. The, the, the stuff the kids know is, is amazing, way, way better than when I was that age. But maybe the broad experience doesn't match up to what we had in the old days. You know, how many of them have, I don't know, built a boat or crewed for the top top adult at the club or sailed a keel boat or gone team racing or whatever it might be. So I think I think we can layer on the kind of advanced skills and learning maybe at a later date. You have to be the world's best sailor at the age of 13. And the chances, if you are, the, the likelihood is you'll probably have given up by the time you're 19. I, I'm interested to hear you saying 13 when I see how many little children aged about 8 and 9 seem to be thrown into their oppies and it's race, race, race. I mean, at that age, do you think we're slightly losing the fun in our sports? For that, you've got to, you've got to define the word fun. You know, for some mm. kids, racing and winning is how they get their fun. For some kids, racing is the, the last thing they want to do and the, mm. the social side or, or the you know, making friends or new experiences or traveling or whatever it is. So, you know, fun's a bit of a dangerous word. I think if we just all sat around in circles having barbecues and throwing footballs at each other, yes, it's great fun, but, but you know, at some point you've got to move on. Stefan, you and I can just do that. It was fine. Would yeah. you, you know. I'd like to do that. Yeah. But I think, Ian, you, you, you nail it. When you, I mean, I think diversity for the youngsters is the key. Sailing the same boat every weekend from the age of whatever it is, I don't know, 13 to 16, you know, give them uh, a broader experience um, and they will be better sailors, they will have more fun 
they will stay with the sport and the cream will still rise to the top. You know that. But it's not, you know, the problem is that the offering is not always that good, you know, and, and we've got to be careful when we think back to our formative years. You know, are the clubs offering what the kids enjoy? You know, are the, is the racing suitable for junior boats? And and I think the other the other trend, which, which is really unfortunate, is a massive rise in single-handers. That's, you know, particularly kids don't always want to sell single-handers. They want to sell with other kids. They might not want to helm. Both of my daughters, mm. they didn't want to helm. They wanted a crew. So, you know, instantly that ruled out, you know, three quarters of the sailing that goes on. You know, that's, that's a massive change, which we can't... Mm. One thing we can't do is just wind back the clock to what happened 30 years ago. Yep. We've got to get inside the new generation's heads. We've got to work out what will appeal to them, mm. uh, not just now, but in, in 10 years' time. And, and just winding back the clock to what we all did is unfortunately not the answer. In fact, there probably is no single answer. Um, talking of winding back the clock, I mean, there's, the optimist is still going strong after all these years with its gaff rig and its uh, strangely shaped sails. And yet America's Cup and uh, all the big... You know, yacht races is all about technology and the latest things, and you're seeing the moths going out there. Is it a gaff rig or a gunter? <laughs> I think it's a spread. A spread, yeah, but is that not a gunter where the gaff extends forward at the mast? We shouldn't be talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, we're, we're out of our depth. <laughs> um, okay. All I know is it's really old-fashioned, and trying to tie all those knots is a nightmare. Should they be, um, I mean, it probably could be too expensive, I don't know, but do we need to be thinking about what are the next best boats? Is RS and all their wonderful new designs the way to go? You know, the Optimist is much loved. What, what, is, the, what is the answer there? Are you just trying to get me in trouble, Stretch? No, not at all. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to... Be go on, let's start for answer. have a point at the bow, Stretch. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The, yeah. the, at the top of the sport, we think we've got to have huge amounts of development go ever faster, wear safety equipment and helmets, and um, and that that is what we're being told will raise the public profile. And yet, at the grassroots, it seems that the most old-fashioned, slowest boat gets ever more popular, with, you know, sometimes mm. a thousand boats turning up in Lake Garda for that Optimus Regatta they do. I think what's happening is there's a massive disconnect between the top of the sport and the grassroots. And I don't think that's very helpful. I, I'm not even sure they necessarily aspire to go from one to the other. I don't think it's actually about the equipment. For sure, it would be good to have boats that didn't fill up with water when they capsized, because the kids love capsizing. Um, but it's more about the community, the social, what you do with the boat, um, how you encourage kids to learn for themselves rather than, than it being an extension of school. So talking about the cutting edge of sailing then, we should get on to something which has got quite a few people scratching their heads, whether it's um, the, the crews that are involved these days or even the technology. America's Cup, guys. Oh, they're both... He's empty. He's got to get another beer, Strick. Yeah, you better get another beer. Um, <laughs> where, where are we going with the America's Cup now? Um, it seems to be very few teams. New Zealand, Stretch. <laughs> yeah, did you not know that's, that's really unhelpful. We're going to an area of the sport where I don't think many people can have an appreciation of what's going on. It's, I mean, for me, the Kiwis have dropped the ball. I think they had the ability to bring it back to a more conventional boat that would have been incredibly quick upwind and downwind, and yet they've stuck with the foiling concept, and you know they only have 
three challengers. It'll be a relatively dull Louis Vuitton series to, to, to pick the challenger. And the word on the street is that, you know, it will change after this cup. So, silence. Oh, my God, that's worrying. Yeah. I think that shows Ian's attitude towards the America's Cup currently, perhaps. <laughs> he's getting a beer, he's gone. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, don't get me going. I, yeah. I just think that I worry about the leading edge of the sport. I worry about an America's Cup boat where the grinders can't even see where they're going. I used to love the fact you had trimmers and bowmen and tacticians and helmsmen and strategists and lots of different roles for different people and now essentially you've a couple of afterguard and, and a load of grinders and i also worry about the offshore scene where increasingly you sail from inside you don't even go outside if you're on an open 60 or or a, you know one of the 100 foot trimarans so it, I just worry about the general direction and I, I don't personally I've never been that attracted by speed I've always been attracted by the strategy and the tactics I think the America's Cup is largely around the the political intrigue and the personalities and I'm not sure I'm not sure the personalities come through you can't even see them you know beneath all the safety gear so it, at the moment I'm not that interested in it um, but maybe I'm just an old fart. Um, sure, the boats are cool, they're fast, it's staggering, engineering, mm. technology, all the rest of it, absolutely amazing. Uh, but when I think back to the intrigue and the personalities of, for instance, 1987 in Fremantle mm. or 83 in, in Newport, it just seems a completely different dimension, really. And so now, obviously, Russell Coots has, has been pushing alongside Larry Ellison the the sail GP concept, um, nationalities predominantly, boats that people might be a little bit more au fait with. I mean, could that even threaten the future of America's Cup as they team up with a decent sports marketing business and, and, and really shoot for the future? Are they going to team up with you, a decent sports marketing business? Oh, that would be an amazing stretch. That would be fantastic. Uh, for me, sail GP, though, is a legacy of the Cup. I mean, they are the cut boats and they are sailed by incredible athletes and one or two incredible sailors. And they are faster now than the current crop of America's cut boats. For me, there's a slight disconnect in the sport there. But all we hear from them is how it's the future and it's the YouTube generation and um, it's extraordinary content that's going to take sailing into the public eye. Is that something that... Um you can see coming to fruition? Well, for me, though, if, I mean, when you, when you look at great games, great sports, so if you take rugby and football, fundamentally the rules of those sports haven't changed for 120 years. And football is still played with a round ball and you kick it in the goal, and rugby is still played with an oval ball and you try and touch it down over the line. So are we missing the point that, you know, there will be areas of the sport that want to progress. That's fantastic, but for the mass... Uh, the masses that go down to sail on a Saturday and Sunday, um, I'm not sure that the, the the foiling boats are the way forward. But I am an old fart like you. So. <laughs> um, I'm being careful to keep my mouth closed. Yeah, yeah. Do you agree? This is unusual. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll steer slightly away from that then, just so we can get Ian chatting again. But um, from a foiling perspective... Um, I mean, the moths have become a huge sensation, haven't they? Is that something that, that you're enjoying seeing now? Well, I mean, they're amazing. They're wonderful. And the people that sell them are super talented. But you need a certain club to sell them from and you need a certain type of sailor to have that amount of money to campaign it. You know, they are, they are a, a valuable and amazing area of the sport. But are they the future for the mass? 
I do not think so. Ian, come back. I mean, the moths are pretty cool, right? I think there's probably not a dinghy sailor um, who doesn't like the idea of going out on a moth and knowing what it feels like, myself included. Uh, but as Sturfry says, as, as long as the boats cost 35 grand or whatever cost, then it's not really going to increase the accessibility of the sport. But not every class has to do that. I think um, there are ways of doing moth sailing cheaper, and I think you can have different divisions within it. And I think one of the things about it, from what I've heard, is it's you know it's such good fun. Maybe there's less emphasis on whether you win or lose, and you know it's it's just it's just a fantastic time out. People having fun on the water. So I find it very hard to criticize the moth. I think it's absolutely staggering, and that the efficiency of those boats is is something else. So I'm a pretty big fan of the moth class and what they're doing, and and I think that that event or you know Rowan Veal when he first took flight and, and won yeah. the world, that was like a an absolute breakthrough moment in our sport. The, the only challenge is it generally is going to um, is is just more and more expensive. Have you finished your Have you finished your bottle of red now, Stefan? Uh, not quite. <laughs> Good. So uh, we managed to drag a little bit of positivity out of Ian there. I feel, and on the topic of um, moths, um, we can now go charging into the ocean race, of which there is an undisputed um, knowledge between the three of us here that. Um, Ian knows more than Steph, Ryan and I about the ocean race, or certainly the Volvo ocean race, as it was. Um, Steph, Ryan did do a leg, didn't you, from Sydney to Hobart? What? No, I sailed with Tycho when I was going to do the Volvo, and I did (laughs) Sydney to Hobart, and then I did Hobart to Auckland, but that was in the year when we were tuning up the old boat. And then you phoned me and said, would I come to Auckland and do the cup? And I said, oh, okay, all right, yeah, I'll earn less and have a warm bed at night, so... And get to hang out with me all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why you lost all your hair. <laughs> well, so, Ocean Race. I mean, um, but there hasn't been a lot coming out from it, really. But um, have you got any insights as to, as to what's happening now? Uh, not really. Um, I know they've announced the course. I think they're struggling for entries in the Imoka 60 class. I think there were two or three confirmed entries. I think one of them's now stopped, but... And I think there's quite a lot of activity in the 65s. But obviously, you know, with COVID-19, that's going to make an already very difficult situation, presumably much harder. One of the things that could have a huge impact would be if the Vendée Globe was postponed. So I think the intention was to reuse some of the Amoka 60s that were doing the Vendée Globe. And, you know, the Vendée Globe, presumably the start, is it November or something this year? Or is it November, December? It's over this winter, but presumably right now they're struggling to get afloat, to do any training. Some of them haven't even finished their boats. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to the start of that race and whether that then impacts on the availability of any boats potentially for the Volvo. But, you know, the Volvo is a tough gig. And there's a bit of a recurring theme here in, in everything we're talking about in that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about TP52s when we used to have 26 boats uh, on the start line or if you're talking about the Volvo in its heyday with the with the 60s, uh, or even before that, um, when it was more amateur. Unfortunately, as the professionalism goes up and the cost goes up, and likewise the moth, um, it, you you end up basically with lower participation because fewer people can afford to do it. And and I think one the problem the Volvo has that the Volvo is well, it's not the Volvo anymore. The Ocean Race has a it is a fantastic race, and it, you know had a huge impact on my life. Um, but it, 
once you've learned how to do it well, once you once once effectively ABN AMRO in particular with their two boat campaign sort of blew the barn doors off the race and, and maybe the Kiwis before that, it's very hard to do it not as well. Uh, so it's very hard to do it in an amateur fashion. So how do we forget? We sort of need to forget everything we know. The fact you need to train, build test sales, you need to be really fit, you need to have a good uh, diet, you need to do blah 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 Because the only way you keep the cost down is fundamentally to do what they used to do, which was to kind of turn up on the start line and throw some people together and chuck some food down below and off you go. And if you didn't have enough people for the next day, you'd pick some people up in port in the first stopover. I know not all the boats were like that, but, but many were. Fundamentally, if it costs 20, 25 million euros to do the to do the ocean race, it's not going to have many teams. And one would imagine uh, with the economic recession that's likely to follow, it's going to come even harder. So very, very difficult. Uh, the TP52 survives through private owners, and it's, it's, it's just about a low enough budget to be able to to be sustainable like that. But but if we want to see mass participation again, whether it's the Admiral's Cup, the TPs, the Ocean Race, somehow we have to reduce the costs. And, and I don't know how we can do that because how do we uninvent all the expensive materials we now use? How do we forget the fact you have to go training and have the best sailors on board and the best weather routing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think you can. So... Stefan, what's the story on the TPs at the moment? Missing out on a lot of the a lot of the series. Uh, well, today is day five of the Worlds in Cape Town, which is obviously oh, joint leader. <laughs> well done. Well, we're smashing it, absolutely smashing it. Fourth World uh, Championship. Uh, and then we were meant to go to Scarlino, obviously cancelled. Then to uh, Sardinia, cancelled. I, I mean, realistically, do I think we'll get two events in this year? Maybe, but unlikely. Um, so, g- going back to the whole um, pile-up of events, I mean, when, when do you think the next TPs... I mean, no-one really knows about COVID, but will, will the will the guys just can 2020, do you think? Crystal ball-gazing. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people, a, a lot of the owners, um, are passionate about the sport, and they would like to go sailing towards the end of the year. How that is manufactured, I do not know. It's going to be tricky. You know, a lot of people who are going to be desperate to go sailing in a variety of boats and only maybe two months to do it. On the boats in South Africa? Uh, yes, and they're trapped in South Africa. Because <laughs> oh, they're, oh, oh. They're can't they sail up. in the winter? Isn't there winter the other, other time of year? Well, can't they sail? Yeah, I, I mean, but the problem is, I mean, hopefully not speaking out of turn, is obviously that the Super Series have commitments to certain venues late in the year in Europe. Um, oh, right. that I don't know but I mean if the year were a write off you would hope that someone would just say right let's rerun this year next year and start in South Africa with a world championship early in the year I am so far off the decision making process um, I let other people worry about that so guys as we get close to wrapping up um... okay, are we wrapping up I've got I've well, got just got started. Well, well, I've just ne- I've nearly finished my rum. That's all. I've left it in. I've left it in the house. <laughs> now I've got something I want to ask you, Ian. Right. So I think you. No. Yes. No. Seriously, mm. I think you, as an individual, empower people by offering them trust. Okay. So whatever big program you're involved with, you put people in their position and you just let them run. And they know that you've got a brain the size of a planet and you're looking over their shoulder, but as long as they don't drop the ball, they'll be fine. Now, I want to then cast your mind back to 96 
Cows Week, trust. You came to Cows with your silver medal, and who did you trust to look after you as your minder? Fergus Ross. Yeah, now how big I is he? I crew. Yeah, he's about <laughs> two foot two and weighs 18 kilos. <laughs> yeah, but he kept, he looked after the medal, didn't he? I've still got it. Well, he was smart. He came up to about three or four of us and said, I'm right in the soup here. Can you look after me? So, guys, what do you reckon was the most fun sailing that you did all as, as at a certain age that wasn't perhaps quite as hardcore as having to go and do the Volvo and things like that, but sailing with buddies probably when you're a bit younger and the stresses of life are a little less? Uh, my, my most fun race was with Ian, interestingly, was uh, 2006 TP Worlds. We broke the boat on the long offshore in the Gulf Stream and we came out in 48 hours time with the boat repaired and we sailed, I, I presume you'd call it a coastal race, I don't know, 46, 48 miles, whatever it was. We had an incident with a barge going upwind towing some kind of hawser that we thought we'd got around the keel, that was almost a disaster but it wasn't. The boat that we were head to head with, um, Pegasus in the regatta, beat us around the weather mark, we put a bigger shoot up and then downwind, we kicked the boat downwind that would be my most fun memory of sailing, where 15, 16 people came together and we did what was required on the day, uh, took a beer after racing. It just, I don't know, put a smile on your face. That was, that, that, that to me was proper, proper yacht racing. Just fun. I know we're all paid to do it and whatever, but... Um, you only, you only told half the story, Steph, right? Better, I'll, I'll save you for the rest of the story. Oh, are you thinking the night before? <laughs> or the morning? more precisely well, the phone... when you thought we'd lost the world yeah and... I came out of the bar slightly the worse for wear and walked home with five or six of the crew and you little you know bloody goody two shoes kind of bloody owner's friend were down at the boat going we can fix this we can fix this and my phone okay. rang go on go on go on no, now's not the time anyways fond, fond memories but um I have really fond memories of sailing the 14 back in 1993 with Chris Fox. Just a good venues, good crack. The boats were really evenly matched. Um, that was a great time. The, the, the Admirals Cup, we've already talked about, 97 on Bradamante. That was also new. Um, I, I can remember more about those races than, than many of the races I've done since. Of the Volvo races I've done... The, the fondest memories, ironically, were with the slowest boat, uh, with Green Dragon. Some of the stuff we got up to on that was outrageous, really, and rounding the horn with, with Neil and uh, and the guys. We had a lot of fun in the Melges, actually, as well, didn't we? The Melges, the Melges 24, that was pretty good in its heyday. I remember the Worlds in Torquay. That's another misadventure with Stir Fry, with Vince Brun. What was it? Vince Brun, Stir Fry, Fumesy and myself, I think. Vince Brun, who's a legend of the sport, one of the, probably the best small keelboat sailor you could ever come across. And Sturfry, he worked for North Sales. He asked Sturfry to put a crew together. And it was uh, myself, Fumesy, Sturfry. And we turned up and did a day's practice. And I remember we were trying to jive inside. We were trying to jive inside, weren't we? And then we made such a hash of it so many times. Vince just said, oh, it's too hard, you blokes, just jive outside. And I remember Vince must have thought, who are this bunch of clowns he's sailing with? And uh, we went out the first day, did pretty well, 100-boat fleet, got a, I don't know, two and a four or something. And then Vince put his back out, like proper put his back out, so he couldn't walk, couldn't sail anymore. And so we ended up taking over for the rest of the regatta. And so I ended up steering. We got the daughter of one of the jury members to crew as the fourth sailor. 
And we went out and we did that. And then she had to go back to school or something. So we got somebody else the next day and so on and so forth. Vince got better and came and did the last day. And we ended up winning the Worlds at the end of all that. That was, that was pretty mad. It was certainly a good night out afterwards. That was where Giorgio unluckily protested us, didn't he, for unfair sportsmanship? Yeah, there was allegations that we deliberately changed our crew to optimise the weight. But anyway, in fact, we could, we just put the first person we could find on the beach because everybody else was already out at the start line and, and we didn't hadn't left the marina. So yeah, no, fun times, really, really fun times. Um, but uh, quite enjoyed the 470 Nationals last year with my daughter Emmy as well. Although yeah. I was out of breath for most of it, but I crewed fair in the 470, something I'd always, always wanted to do. How was the rig? <laughs> What are you implying? I, I about, I'm still fighting weight, just about. Fighting weight? Yeah, for a 5-0 crew. Um, how did you guys end up in that? We were mid-fleet, somewhere, I don't know, 11th or something. Not oh, too bad. Well done. Was, we, considering it was the boat that Johnny and I sailed in the games in 96, the boat was 25 years old, So, but we did borrow some better sails. Same rig? Yes. Yeah, same rig. Borrowed a boom, because the boom had a crack in it, and same everything else, but borrowed some sails. And did you, was it Mars livery or not? Not the sails, because I boiled them. And the boat didn't have branding on it, because it, the last regatta it did was the Olympics. Oh. So does that mean that for 25 years, poor old Mrs. Walker's had to have that boat in your garage? But she's not allowed in the garage. That's for, <laughs> uh, for boats and boards and things. But no, the, um, it was actually in the National Maritime Museum for about 12 years, and then unfortunately they phoned me up one day and said I had to have it back. <laughs> so it's been in the garage ever since. Good. Well, I think you should keep it. Forever. Hey, what about your sailing stretch? Yeah, um, you know it's going very well actually, and I, um, I'm he's sure a, he's an owner. Ian, he's an owner. Yeah, I actually don't normally talk to you fellows these days. Yeah, well, we just need a decent grinder. Surfry's not got much on at the moment. I'm sure he'll come along. Anyway, we digress. Um, what's going to happen with the prem, Ian? West Ham are out of the relegation zone on goal difference at the moment, yeah. so we we wouldn't be too disappointed if if the league got an. Um, Stop where it is. I don't know. I think um, relative to everything else that's going on, I think the Premier League sort of not that important right now. No. Well, I think you can um, sign off with that to say that fifth from bottom is a pretty good season for you guys. And, uh... well, we beat Southampton twice again, like normal. <laughs> what I and all Ian's friends have learned in life is always to let him have the last word. So on that note, we'd love to thank him for giving us an incredible insight into British sailing. Ian, thanks for joining us. <laughs>